This week on the It's a Monkey podcast. We could look at the whole of all of computing and internet networks so far as being one first era of transferring simple information openly on the internet. And now this whole second era that we're heading into now with blockchain as one of transferring value via smart networks. And so the, we're starting to push more complexity through the internet pipes and modulate information for signatures and validation and confirmation and loading the information packets with value. So we're heading into a smart network territory that's really a whole new form of computing that allows us the long tail of economics and governance. And so the only remaining sectors of the economy that haven't been completely re-engineered for the digital era are economics and governance. And so blockchain being a secure value confirmation and transfer system is the core functionality that allows this. Good morning, good evening, hello, wherever you are in the world. It is Friday, August the 4th, 2017. Um, I'm coming to you live from downtown Sydney, Australia. I'm turning and looking out the window, looking out across of Atlassian's HQ, which we're right next to, and it is another beautiful, sunny, sunny winter's day. Um, wherever you are in the world, if you're not in Sydney, Australia, your weather's probably worse than ours. We are incredibly um, lucky. Thank you for joining joining us on the podcast. It is episode number 101. Now, before I get into this week's podcast, if you missed episode 100, you really got to go back and have a listen to it. Kevin Kelly, who is, uh, you know, one of the founding editors of Wired and he's written a, a new book about, uh, you know, the future of technology. Um, I had a chat to him. He's, he's an absolute super smart, um, super articulate guy. And we had a fantastic chat and it's really been one of my favorite interviews. Um, I say that a lot. It's hard to choose. They like my children, you know, they all different and they all good. But Kevin Kelly was a real special one in episode 100. But we're going to get right into episode 101. As usual, I have uh, Kate Frappel, who's with me from um, Whistler in Canada, working remotely. Kate, thanks for joining us. No worries. It's good to be back again. Um, we've got a fantastic interview now. Of course, everyone these days in our industry is talking about blockchain, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. And I uh, chatted with Melanie Swan, who's the author of Blockchain, Blueprint for a New Economy, and also the founder of the Institute for Blockchain Studies. And boy, did we have an interesting chat. So if you're interested in blockchain and Bitcoin, and let's face it, who isn't? And let's face it, who totally understands it as well? I think there's about three people in the world that totally understand it. And so we all got so much to learn about it. Um, and I had a fantastic chat with Melanie um, um, about that. Remember, you can follow us on Monkey Podcast on Twitter. You can subscribe to receive an email when we release a new podcast. And please share the word um, about the podcast. We really um, love to hear from from everyone. Let's get uh, straight into a couple of news items before we go to the interview. Kate, um, interesting to see there was something that popped up on my Facebook feed that hackers are now able to if you share a photo, like a peace sign, they are able to extract your fingerprint and use that to, to hack any biometrics that uh, use your fingerprint. Tell us a little bit more about this uh, story. Yeah, so um, 
I guess all these people that have been putting up their peace sign fingers in their photos uh, need to be a little bit more careful because photos that are taken within three meters and that are particularly uh, clear and well lit, uh, hackers can actually extract your fingerprint um, and use it to get into your devices or, or any, anything where you've used your fingerprint as a form of security. I think it's it's really a thing in Japan, isn't it? It's like for some reason it's it's a cultural thing to do the peace sign on every photo, right? I see them down yeah. at Bondi Beach, and and when I was in Japan, it's like it's it's almost every single photo they do the peace sign. So, um, in some cultures, it's going to be more of an issue than others, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And like interestingly, the um, people who have figured this out uh, are the Japan's National Institute of Informatics. So yeah, they've they've actually studied this and they've studied ways that you can actually get around it, which probably won't be accessible for another two years. The solution that they're working on is actually some kind of like a transparent sticker um, mm-hmm. that you wear on your fingerprint, on your top of your fingers, um, and they when you take the photo, it disguises your actual print. What about the uh, what about the opposite, where you have sort of like a two-factor auth in the sense of the device actually checks if that fingerprint is from a sort of live, you know, finger that's got, you know, blood or pulse running through it. I mean, that's yeah. so. So that's the other solution is I think it's a company called Goodix and they've yeah got a live fingerprint scanner. So it's like an infrared analysis of your tissue and your pulse. So it's, I guess, an extra layer there. So it's not really relying on just the print. It's relying on the fact that it's a live print. Yeah, it's always a cat and mouse, always cat and mouse uh, race, isn't it? But security is just becoming a bigger and bigger. I think I think the stakes are getting higher and higher. You know, as as everything of ours is online, the the stakes are so high that if someone can actually you know penetrate the system, they they've got access to your entire life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in uh, Japan right now, you can register your credit card and your fingerprint together and make mm-hmm. purchases that way. Interesting. Do you use any um, biometric sort of fingerprints on your iPhone or your or any other device? Yeah, on my phone I do. It's interesting. I, I got a new bank account here in Canada when I arrived and uh, they actually allow you to set up, instead of logging in with a code or two-factor auth, you can um, use your fingerprint to get into the app and make purchases, mm-hmm. transfer money and stuff like that. So, yeah, I actually use it quite a bit getting into that particular banking app. Otherwise, yeah, some, some sign-in things like, um, you know, when you clock in for some jobs I've seen, people are really big on it. Mm-hmm. And in America, they're big on um, fingerprints and stuff at the airport. I saw another video of a company in the States that's offered employees to embed a tiny little, it looks like a little piece of rice in their finger. Mm. And it's like a smart chip and that's used for the vending machine. It's used for the security access. And people are actually, they actually inject it and actually embed this little chip inside their finger. It's not a bad idea. People are already injecting stuff. So, Yeah, there was a chap in Sydney that, um, you know, in Sydney we've got a smart card system for our transport. And he embedded the smart chip for that card into himself. <laughs> which... I feel like that's a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, if people have time on their hands. Um, so 
yeah so any, so look it's it's uh, d- definitely have to be be aware of these things and i think the challenge is people we've dumped so many photos of ourselves and videos of ourselves online um mm. you know and 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 people will be able to use that the, the, all those biometric signatures um, for for the wrong reasons. I, I had a Toshiba laptop many years ago that actually had a fingerprint scanner to instead of using a password. And I started using it, and it got a bit tedious. And I actually, it was actually quicker just to type in a text password. Mm, my my first laptop actually had um, like facial recognition. So when you sat in front of it, it would scan your face, and then if it recognized you, it would log in. I think it's really useful for two-factor auth. I think it's a nice two-factor auth. So you put in your text password, and then it sort of takes a, switches on the camera. It says, I'm switching on the camera um, just to, you know, authorize you, and, and boom. You know, I, I think as a only primary password, I think it's – or access system, I think it's a bit painful. But on yeah. the odd occasion, as you say, for banking apps and things like that, it's actually it's better than tokens and text messages and you know all those physical tokens. Some of the banks in Australia use the physical tokens, which are a royal pain as well, and the battery goes flat and you lose them. And so, yeah, but, yeah, uh, it's not fun. The only thing with um like biometrics is you can't if if people if it becomes big enough and people hack it, it's not something you can change. Like you could change your password, you could change like lots of things. You can't change your fingerprint. They've got your fingerprint for life, right? Yeah. So yeah. once once you were hacked once, you'd basically not be able to use that form of identification again. Interesting world. Okay, what else do we have uh, do we have happening uh, in this in the, in our industry this week, Kate? Uh, so scientists in the U.S. Uh, have successfully edited the DNA of um, some human embryos, which had previously been done in, in China but was sort of a bit of a legal issue in the U.S. And what they're doing is taking DNA that has, I guess, uh, mutations or that carries a particular disease um, and then extracting those parts from the embryo so that the I guess the baby doesn't doesn't carry that gene. It's an absolutely amazing story. I mean, the, they only decoded the human genome what ten years ago. I don't remember exactly fully decoded it. I mean, it's it's all you know. And now we're editing it. Is and I read though that they they um, destroyed these embryos. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they haven't actually gone through with it. But for the sake of the experiment, um, it was fairly successful. And they use a tool called CRISPR. Out of 58 edited embryos, 42 were mutation-free. 16 had unwanted mutations. Which So they did pretty well. They did pretty well. And in this particular experiment, they did better than, than China in the sake of, um, I think they called it mosaicism. As usual, the, the common theme of, you know, the force for good and the force for evil. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic to remove um, problematic genetic mutations. But, you know, I can see people wanting designer babies, uh, give them blue eyes, give them red hair, uh, make them run like an athlete. I mean, the ethical issues are just, uh, I mean, I, I can't even begin to wrap my head around you know the ethical issues and how you manage all of this, and and where is the line? What what is a genetic mutation? There's some very clear ones. There's some very clear ones where if you're born with a congenital heart defect, I mean, absolutely, that's 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 quite clear. But 
you know, there, there, there's others that, that aren't, that aren't as clear, you know, so. Definitely. And, um, well, in this particular experiment, they did a uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is also a heart condition, um, that leads to potential sudden death. Um, so it was good that they could get rid of that, but, um, there's some, I guess there's just some legalities in the U S at the moment around whether they can publish this research and, if it gets in the wrong hands, yeah, you get these designer babies or if they make a mistake, then you potentially change the human gene pool forever. Mm, wow. Kate, it's, it's the, the world we're heading into is quite, you know, and, and speaking to Kevin Kelly last podcast, what, what I loved about Kevin Kelly is he's, so, he's, a, he's an optimist about the impact that technology is going to have and reading his book or listening to his book in my case, it, it uplifted me. It got me excited, but it's sometimes when I look at these technologies, boy, you can see how if they go wrong, they are just going to go absolutely remarkably wrong, especially in the wrong hands. And, um, where are we going to be in five, 10 years, 20 years? Well, what are we going to be talking about on this podcast in 20 years? Kate? So we'll probably have a uh, robot, you know, editors and AI editor who, who knows? You know, I was chatting. My sister's got um, two young kids, and we was just talking. She says, "You know, I can't even think about what, what the, you know, what their world's going to be like in in twenty years when they're in their early twenties, and and how I'm going to manage that because we're all going to be living in something that's that we can't even picture now. So uh, I hope it all works out. I'll leave it on that positive note. Yeah, um, me too. Me too. Anyway, you're listening to episode uh, 101. We're in the hundreds now, Kate. Exciting. It, exciting that's a monkey podcast we talk about everything related to technology startup entrepreneurship we try to find super smart and interesting people to to chat about to chat with i should say we're going to take a short break and uh, after the break we're going to play my interview that i had with melanie swan who's the author of blockchain blueprint for a new economy she's also the founder of the institute for blockchain studies and let's face it you really want to know about the blockchain and about Bitcoin so that you can sound smart at the next cocktail party and the next dinner where everyone is talking about the blockchain and crypto and everyone's too scared to say that they don't exactly quite know what it is. Right. So uh, stick around. It's, it's really um, a great chat. Hi, my name is Joe Pinto. I'm the business operations manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Manage Flitter can help you quickly and cheaply build an organic following on Twitter? Let me explain in six easy steps. Step one, find new prospects on Twitter with Power Mode, Manage Flitter's advanced Twitter search feature. Step two, easily filter and sort results to find the most relevant Twitter accounts for you to follow. Step three, Follow these Twitter accounts using Manage Flitter's simple interface. Step four, unfollow accounts that do not follow you back within 14 days. Step five, watch your Twitter follower numbers grow as high quality accounts follow you back. Step six, rinse and repeat to maintain consistent organic Twitter account growth. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough. You're back with It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I'm the CEO of Manage Flitter and soon to be managed social as well. We talk about everything relating to tech, startups, political economy. Now, as um, you would know, if you listen to this podcast 
frequently, one of my new interests is the blockchain, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, everything around um, that side of of the the next phase of, of, I wouldn't even call it the next phase of the internet, I would almost call it the next, next phase of technological advancements. And I'm very excited to say that I've tracked down in New York, one of the uh, authors of one of the best-selling blockchain books, um, a book called Blockchain Blueprint for a New Economy, and also a blockchain theorist at the New School for Social Research, amongst many other things. Melanie Swan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Kevin. Melanie, before we get into the nice juicy bits and pieces, let's take one little step back because blockchain is the type of abstract technology that a lot of us are struggling to um, get our heads around. So let's try big picture again. We've revisited this many times in the podcast, but blockchain, what is it? Yes, thank you. So uh, blockchain, it sounds very fancy and possibly confusing. Blockchain is software. It's a software protocol. So just like there's a software protocol called SMTP, Simple Mail Transfer Protocol, that tells your email application how to send email across the web, Blockchain is similarly a software protocol that tells the web how to send money or assets and how to make sure that only one copy of that asset is transferred. So it's sort of like um, just like Gmail is the application, Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency application, and then the software protocol that sits out there on the web and tells the application actually how to run is SMTP in the case of email and blockchain in the case of Bitcoin, which tells uh, the software how to deliver value and record it in a ledger and transfer it across the web. So it's sort of like just like having one giant spreadsheet or register of bank balances out on the web that ledger that's a ledger. And so when I want to send money to you, I send a software command that tells the ledger software to transfer some of my coin over to your account. And the reason it's important to do this in a certain way with cryptographic protocols on the internet is because we don't want the double spend problem. Uh, So when I send you a copy of something in email, you can make as many copies as you want, but with money, we only want it spent once. And so the additional cryptographic software makes sure that that ledger balance can only be spent once. Um, But inherently, blockchain is just a payments method. It's a software. It's a better version of a VPN. It's a way of securely transferring value uh, over the Internet. Now, you break down um, what you see as phases of technological developments on the blockchain as sort of phase one, which you call the cryptocurrency phase, I believe, um, building cryptocurrencies on the blockchain phase two, which is smart contracts, and phase three, which I actually find by far the most interesting phase, which is using the blockchain for management and transfer of intangible assets. Now, cryptocurrency, most people have already had some experience and, and uh, with, with uh, Bitcoin has been in the press for, for quite some time. 
phase two smart contracts, Ethereum has really um, you know, gained a lot of uh, press and a lot of interest and ICOs has, has, has gained traction. So we're almost screaming through phase one and phase two. Talk to us a little bit about the phase two, phase three. I mean, is it, is it moving that fast that we can start looking at phase three? And are, are people already implementing interesting ex, uh, implementations of phase three of the blockchain for that intangible asset side of, of, of management and, and transfer? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I think already what's been surprising is how quickly blockchain is starting to be adopted. Uh, that said, it will still be decades for it to roll out substantially. The initial internet took 30 to 40 years to roll out and 15 years alone for when corporate email was the main killer app. Um, but right now, every different industry is starting to look at blockchain and trying to understand how to separate, how to decouple the human decision-making parts of processes from the automatable execution parts of the process of doing business. And so this is true in financial services and digital payments, supply chain logistics, healthcare, internet of things. So every different industry has a variety of different kinds of blockchain applications in all of the phases I laid out, which is number one, simple transfer of currency in the immediate spot market, and then uh, smart assets or smart property, having digital cryptographically activated assets that can be registered and transferred on the blockchain, say in the case of a custom shipment, tracking the provenance of the goods across the different ports they go through. And then now also the third phase, the intangible assets or advanced applications of really trying to bring in smart contracts and organizing more complicated programs for execution in the future. So how we're going to, for example, do mortgage rate resets on an ongoing basis in securitized mortgage contracts. And this takes advantage of some of the proof of existence functionality where with a cryptographic hash, we can confirm the contents of any digital asset and then book it to the blockchain with a time date stamp. So we know what that particular asset looked at looked like at a particular time and it can be validated at any future moment. Now, Melanie, is is blockchain technology, I mean, is this as a significant shift or as a significant technology as the printing press, the internet, or, 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 or is it just a lot of hype that's, um, you know, the press is, is wanting to latch onto because they always, they're always looking for, you know, hyped, interesting stories? Yeah, I think it's really, um, I think exactly like you said at the top of the call, we could really think about blockchain as a completely new form of technological advancement. Um, so to me, it's a, it's a core infrastructure for global smart networks. It's not as much a financial transfer instrument as much as it's just a heightened processing mechanism for our digital smart network infrastructure. And so we haven't, we could look at the whole of all of computing and internet networks so far as being one first era of transferring simple information openly on the internet. And now this whole second era that we're heading into now with blockchain as one of transferring value via smart networks. 
And so that we're starting to push more complexity through the internet pipes and modulate information for signatures and validation and confirmation and loading the information packets with value. So we're heading into a smart network territory that's really a whole new form of computing that allows us the long tail of economics and governance. And so the only remaining sectors of the economy that haven't been completely re-engineered for the digital era are economics and governance. And so blockchain being a secure value confirmation and transfer system is the core functionality that allows this. And so just like we saw the long tail of content with Amazon and eBay, where you could find that one book that you really loved or that one musical artist, and the two parties could meet across the internet. Uh, similarly, now we're starting to be able to give the power of the economic printing press, if you will, to everybody worldwide. And so we can have long tail economics and governance systems that we're born into one economy and one government and we never really think about the possibility of having different frameworks for economics and governance but now with blockchain there's nothing rooting us to the geographic territory or system we've been in and so i don't i don't see it as being conflictual as much as just having more so there'll be multiple choices in the kinds of economic services we might like to design and participate in and this is very important for uh, blockchain is an important leapfrog technology in the sense that just like cell phones were, were a big jump leap forward in developing nations. Similarly, uh, it didn't make sense to build out copper network, plain old telephone service to every last corner, every, every last mile of the world. And similarly, now it doesn't make sense to build out brick and mortar bank branches to every last neighborhood in the world, the 4 billion underbanked and the 2 billion unbanked. It makes a lot more sense in this digital era to use wallet software on phones to be the last mile of banking. And so for financial inclusion, uh, blockchain is an extremely important leapfrog technology, the next one that we're now seeing after cell phones. So the power of the printing press in terms of anybody can participate in economic systems and ha uh, realize financial inclusion, perhaps as a basic human right, is an important step forward, I think, globally for, for our human society. Do you think that the blockchain could disrupt the fact that the nation state is the geopolitical unit. Do you think it could actually disrupt the, the nation state itself? Mm. I think that's uh, certainly that's the viewpoint of some blockchain supporters, the libertarian, more libertarian oriented group. And that is a potential implication. So I think it will be like a lot of things. Uh, for example, the major newspapers in the world did not go away just because we have blogs and Instagram and Twitter now, but it did force them to redefine uh, their, their value proposition to their consumer. So I think governments have had a monopoly so far and haven't really had to think about the best way to deliver value-added services to citizens. And this is a completely new mindset. I 
think governments will become a lot more responsive and efficient and participative with citizens. So I think what will happen is that just like not everything becomes decentralized just because it can, that there'll be efficiencies, more natural efficiencies between some systems still are well organized hierarchically, like the size of the firm, and others, other systems are more efficient in decentralized organizations. So I think there'll be more of a better fitting process of what makes sense for a large federal government to provide and what kinds of other services make sense to have other uh, providers offering. I found it you know, really interesting where you mentioned economics and governments are the, are the two areas that the internet hasn't really disrupted per se. I mean, I, I think indirectly uh, one could, could probably argue that things like Twitter have, have disrupted um, you know, things like the Arab Spring. It was, it, it, it was a catalyst for the Arab Spring and, and, and aspects like that. But wh- what I'm interested in finding out more about you, you mentioned the blockchain could actually free millions of people from poverty. Right now, now this is where I really love technology as an enabler. I, I met someone recently who was one of the first Australians to receive a cochlear implant, and she was born deaf, and now she she talks almost normally and can hear normally. And I really get a buzz when I see technology having this grassroots impact. I'm not really a tinkerer for tinkerer's sake, but when I see an outcome like that, that's powerful. And and when I read that statement in one of your presentations, that the blockchain can free people from poverty, that really spun my propeller, so to speak. Talk us through, um, I mean, you know, to uplift 2 billion people out of poverty yeah. overnight, for example, through helping with things like free remittances. Right, exactly. So the some of the different uh, UN and World Bank IMF studies uh, suggest that there are two billion of our seven billion people that are unbanked, don't have any kind of access to banking or credit services, and then another two billion that are underbanked, which are basically deemed unattractive, not not really um, profit worthy customers by the current brick and mortar banking system that f- tends to focus on higher higher value clientele. And I think it's just because we haven't had an effective model for reaching more people. So exactly like cell phones reach everybody worldwide pra- on a practical basis. Similarly, there can be banking applications on smartphones and traditional clamshell flip phones via SMS. So a whole suite of digital banking services can be rolled out uh, effectively overnight to the 2 billion unbanked persons in the world and also these other 2 billion underbanked. And so one of the most obvious kinds of services that there are several Bitcoin startups working on is the international remittance market, which can take 10 to 40 percent commissions and take days and weeks for one party to transfer money to a family member or another party. And this is why transferring cell phone minutes effectively with uh, using cell phone minutes as a currency with the M-Pesa system. Um, was uh, hit a big need in this inner transferring money back to your family in another region of the country or another country. And so this could just immediately make a difference in uplifting 2 billion people out of poverty overnight. And there are several Bitcoin startups targeting this uh, because it is such an obvious, obvious thing, just the ability to transfer money to somebody 
at a different place in the world. One of my passions is real cost economics, you know, where where the price actually, you know, reflects the cost to society, the nation state, all your communities. Can they, Will the blockchain be able to perhaps through Internet of Things be able to perhaps do a better job of, of, of implementing real cost economics? There's so many distortions in the world today where, where some things are so cheap and they should be so much more expensive and other things which are quite expensive should be a lot cheaper and we all know that capitalism is in its current form is does wonderfully well at certain things but but fails at many others yeah i think that's an important point so blockchain or cryptocurrencies would just be uh, with pricing available on cell phones would be another channel for finding out economic information about the market and so there could be arbitrage opportunities. Uh, other, uh, already people play the arbitrage opportunity between fiat uh, government-based currencies and cryptocurrencies on uh, different exchanges. Different exchanges might have different values around the world. But in terms of market uh, having access to better pricing information and being able to quote and participate in the global market on a, on a better basis, that would be something that has been pointed out as a potential benefit of cryptocurrencies and blockchain. And I think it could be the transparency behind some of the market pricing could also be very helpful. So for example, many countries don't have uh, credit services, credit bureaus. And so we could have decentralized credit bureaus on the blockchain with open source FICO scores. So even uh, your how your credit score is determined is a black box mystery to most people worldwide and unavailable to many people as well. And so not just pricing of goods and services, but also how determinations are made in the financial services market about access to credit could be another big opportunity of blockchains. I love the example. I think it was in your book of self-driving cars that communicate with each other. And there's a it's sitting, you know, it has some blockchain uh, software linked up and where perhaps one passenger in one self-driving car can let the network know that it's in less of a hurry and another passenger in another car knows that it lets, lets the network know that it's in more of a hurry and the cars communicate with each other have some sort of exchange and of course it's factored into the trip that perhaps the car that's in more of a hurry can perhaps move on through a lot faster to the, and perhaps pay a little bit of a premium for that to the cars that are in less of a hurry i i love that idea because it's it's i even find myself when when i'm in less of a hurry i'll take public transport when i'm in more of a hurry i take an uber so in a way, I'm taxing myself along that that in in that way. But with a self-driving um, network that has some intelligence, boy, you can do some fantastic optimizations and 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 sort of uh, uh, cost transfers. Yes, I completely agree, and that goes back to your last question as well, which is that I think the farther future is uh, automatic markets. So smart resources price themselves. You don't need the involvement of the uh, passenger in the car. The smart resource knows the market for its services right at that moment and can negotiate with other parties on the network. 
So this could be quite true in energy markets, in health. I'm working on a paper for a quantized healthcare units on a global basis now, where um, smart networks and smart resources will just automatically price themselves. You need much less in. Uh, you don't need human involvement. It's just another automated function that can happen. And also, it's. Uh, so this starts to have, we start to have more autonomous systems. And then what that also means is there can be much more coarse, uh, fine-grained micro-pricing of these different services that aren't worth, as Nick Zabo says, like the, the human cognitive power to consider the transaction. But these microtransactions conducted by automated smart resources can uh, effectively grease the wheels in a much more unobtrusive and efficient way for all of us. Melanie, last week I, I uh, put a question to one of the senior members of the Reserve Bank in Sydney. What's uh, Australia doing about cryptocurrencies and blockchain? And they said they've they only late last year put together a task group to to look at um, you know uh, what they can do and and its impact, etc. In New York City, New York State, the U.S., is there much going on um, on the government level around cryptocurrency and blockchain technologies? Yes, in particular, there's a, the U.S. lags in regard to digital payments, lags most uh, most other many other countries. Uh, for example, I just saw something about China that 40% of consumer payments are are digital payments via smartphones currently. But anyway, yes, so the, the U.S. has a couple of initiatives. One is for real-time digital payments, and so this is something that the Federal Reserve Board and banking system is working on. And the other big effort is with the U.S. Treasury, which is using the uh, essentially the synecdoche property of blockchains, which is you can have arbitrarily many levels of roll-up of detail that you're tracking. And so a Treasury official that I was speaking with was talking about how you, a U.S. dollar bill, a single dollar bill, has 20 different levels of roll-up to get to the whole economy. And so when the Treasury is tracking the money supply having some sort of system where they can immediately click and see different levels of detail is something that's very helpful to them for managing risk in the national financial system and so those are the two two principal digital payments and fiat currency tracking are two principal applications uh, that are being focused on in the u.s currently i know that the uh, winklevoss tw twins try to get some uh, cryptocurrency etf um, through and the um, securities exchange authorities there just didn't want to let it let it through. I'm not exactly sure what was uh, the motivation for not letting it through there, but I that I think the yeah. cryptocurrency community was a little bit disappointed around that. Yeah, and it, it makes sense. I, the question I get most often from when I'm speaking is, how can I start participating? And should mm -hmm. I have investment exposure to cryptocurrencies? How can I get it? So the Winklevoss twins have an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, that was rejected a first time. And I understand it's under uh, another potential approval around right now. And so we would expect that there would be more market securities that uh, track the crypto world. And so it, different individual, you know, why is there not a mutual fund of the crypto coin market cap, which has Bitcoin and Ethereum and Ripple and IOTA and Dash, and et cetera. So we're, uh, we're really wanting securities grade products for investing in the crypto markets. 
Um, there's one company that uh, allows you to invest your IRA, your retirement fund, in Bitcoin. And we would expect that there would be um, a lot more products. I think it's just that the, the traditional market regulators uh, have been lagging in getting and approving some of these products. And the other thing that I would notice is, for example, another thing, another big opportunity that's missing that I expect to happen is some sort of market research, uh, securities analysis and ratings information like a Moody's or S&P rating agency for all of the initial coin offerings. And so when you look at the different pages to try to understand there are a plethora, the hundreds of offerings, and there's no market provider in regard to which, how to qualify the different projects. And so I'd expect a Bloomberg page with ICO rating information. And so there's, uh, in fact, this is a great opportunity for the traditional financial services market to start offering these kinds of services in regard to the crypto e uh, economy. It's also a great opportunity for the tra traditional financial market services to offer things like hosted uh, cryptocurrency wallets because they've traditionally been um, you know, the source of trust probably more than any other institution in our, our nation state. And um, cryptocurrency wallets are being hacked. I believe Tim Lee, who we've spoken to previously on the podcast, another um, blockchain expert, he says 30% of wallets have been hacked. So be careful where you store your cryptocurrency. So it's, it's they're a little, been a little bit slow. What are the American banks? I know the Australian banks have been looking at it. There's nothing that's happening yet. American banks, what's going on in the landscape there with respect to crypto? Yes, also also lagging. So the Brit I think the British banks are perhaps in the lead here, HSBC, in terms of at least a strategic plan for a crypto wallet to target uh, customer new customer segments that aren't uh, the traditional customer segment. So in making their market larger. But yes, exactly. Until we see the Morgan Stanley crypto wallet that I can do some digital investing with or the Chase Manhattan wallet. Exactly. I think that the main way that blockchain will roll out um, uh, to a very large adoption audience is via the consumer and they're the trusted brand. And so just like I didn't get an ATM card from uh, some random uh, website, I got it from my bank. So when the trusted names of the consumer banks and the investment banks start to roll out crypto wallets and crypto solutions, then that's when we'll really see a lot of adoption. And the, the technical, so they're working out that I would characterize the phase of the industry adoption as exploratory at this moment. Melanie, do you think the Fed and the, and the government, the U.S. governments are concerned about the US dollar losing its place as being the ultimate store of value in the global economy. And I mean, I think if I was them, you know, getting going really deep into the crypto side of things so they, they can, you know, have a have a strong finger in the pie and a say around that part of things. I mean, Bitcoin has become a store of value for people in uh, from countries where there's a lot of instability. And it seems to be doing an incredibly good job of holding that value, you know, better than at least a lot better those than those unstable regimes. Yeah, yes, definitely. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, for any any uh, fiat currency, the idea would be to uh, try to understand how to innovate within this new paradigm and offer a crypto version of as a complement to the existing currency, uh, not just to, to hide away from the possibilities. 
Um, so I think the successful countries will figure out how to conduct certain federal fiscal operations with cryptocurrencies. And maybe first it will be with crypto denominated bonds or other kinds of uh, specific financial instruments or implementing a guaranteed basic income initiative in a cryptocurrency. Uh, so I think there could be, there would, what we probably see from smart adaptable governments is rolling out crypto for their own purposes in limited market areas. What I found interesting as well, I think again, it was in your book, um, you mentioned that there is a use case, particularly now that blockchain technologies can support it for not buying assets, but almost like assets as a service, right? So you mentioned, you know, we used to all buy music and now most of us use Spotify or some form there of Google Music or Apple Music where we actually, you know, pay a subscription, but we get access to the benefit of the assets. I found that really quite intriguing, particularly in Australia, where we essentially, for most part, got got two dominant cities, and um, we're a huge empty country, and two little postage stamps pieces of land have incredible prices that most people can't easily access. Property is treated for the most part as a normal good, even though it's t- it's absolutely not. And yet, people all want to buy this asset because. That's the way they can lock in the benefits of this asset. Um, I was trying to get my head around a little bit how this could play out, particularly with something like property. Mm -hmm. Right, because there's what you point out is a a scarcity. We have a constrained market of lots of scarcity of one kind of asset and an abundance of another kind of land, open land asset that's not in, in not as much high demand. And so the whole the whole process hinges on uncertainty. So the reason I don't have to own CDs or a car anymore is because I feel confident when I call an Uber or when I boot up Spotify, I can access that consumable market good. Um, it, there's an abundance of that good. But land and real estate and securities in the future, we we grip our, our investment funds in our hot little fists because we don't trust that there will be an, a way to consume that good in the future if we don't own it personally. And so it it's a huge transformation from a war era scarcity mentality and uncertainty about the future. And so this is why smart contracts can be so important because they, they uh, lock us into different kinds of future consumable cash flow streams and start to unshackle our scarcity mentality and allow us to think more abundantly. Um, you know, that that's I don't have to own a house or I don't have to own uh, securities for the future. I can own securities as a service that are blockchain based and that will deliver me an income stream uh, with a smart contract. So I don't have to worry about my future. And this could uh, really unlock, I think, a lot of uh, human cognitive worry um, and energy towards a better quality of life for all of us if we start to think about if we felt more secure about the financial future. I mean, it's interesting. I think Airbnb is almost like a quarter of the way there, right? There are some people, I think James Altucher, who's who's in your part of the world, he does a podcast and uh, he says he, he, he doesn't get into long-term leases. He doesn't own property. He just he just stays in Airbnb properties, and in a, and in a way, that is property as a service, right? Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And so now we just need to do it with securities as well. 
he, he's guaranteed access to property because there's always supply there and he doesn't have to worry about the availability. Melanie, uh, how did you get into blockchain and crypto? And, um, you know, what was what was your path into into this interesting area? I've, uh, I've always been interested in emerging technologies. I have uh -huh. a genomics startup. I have um, more and more things in the world have started to become a math problem with, uh, with software technologies. And I have a background in optical networking and uh, interoperation of global internet networks. And so to me, I started to I started, I knew of Bitcoin, it's, oh, okay, it's a better version of PayPal, it's a digital payment thing. It, yeah, okay, it sounds interesting, sounds valid, sounds useful. But then when I realized, then when I heard about smart contracts, and I realized that we can really reinvent not just economics for this current spot market, but the future obligations of securities market, as well as the entire legal services market by putting contracts online and doing our voting online in finally a way that might work, um, I realized this is just a transformational global network infrastructure technology, and it allows us to get into a much more heightened, high-performance smart network automation era, and that this is going to be important uh, because we have humans and machines in much tighter integration and collaboration. And so I, I, when I really realized it's, a transformative network technology that's when i got really excited about it have you been inspiring other women to get into the what this is can be a little bit of a a geeky sort of <laughs> <laughs> you know at the moment it's very sort of you know experimental geeky enthusiast type environment and <laughs> and and encouraging more diversity in that scene um, yeah, uh, I have no idea. I think uh, <laughs> blockchains are an exciting technology and anybody, when I've seen anybody hear about it and think about how it might work in an area they're familiar with, they tend to get excited about it. And so that uh, that's women and men, that's uh, people from every different kind of country, that's different age groups. So I think it's, uh, it's really, it's like the internet, it's a technology for everybody. It is. Melanie, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Melanie Swan is a blockchain theorist and also the best-selling author of The Blockchain Blueprint for a New Economy. I've got the Kindle version. It was only $11. And I saw, I don't know if this is new or it's been for a while, but you can actually rent books on Kindle. So they offered to rent me your book for 5 bucks or buy it for 11 bucks. I bought it for 11 bucks. So um, um, I didn't know you could rent books on Kindle, um, which is interesting and fantastic as well. So we really are moving to the, to the service, everything as a service economy. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much, Kevin. I really appreciated being on the podcast and chatting with you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Melanie. Bye-bye. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. No, Kate, there was quite an important event this week where the blockchain forked, which I, you know, I spoke to Melanie a little while ago, so we didn't chat about that, where, um, you know, there, there was a, a new 
Bitcoin blockchain that was created. I haven't actually, first of August, it's almost the equivalent of, of uh, you know, a new Federal Reserve printing out some new US dollars with different set of rules and you have two different sets of US dollars. I haven't actually followed up what's actually gone on with that. But the point I wanted to make is there's a lot going on. It's still early days. It's still crazy. It's still iterating like mad. But, um, you know, a lot of food for thought in that chat. Yeah, definitely. Um, she makes a good point. As you're saying, like this is sort of the next era. So blockchain is uh, the era of value transfer and the internet as we know it was the first era of information transfer. So it's just an interesting, interesting thought of um, a new phase. And I love the point she makes that the one area or, or one of the few areas that has not been disrupted by um, technology is governance, right? Yeah, and economics. And economics, governance and economics. And it was just such an interesting, such a such an important, important point. And I think that's why people are so excited about the promise of the blockchain. And they're still, you know, removing the middleman, uh, the, the middle person. Uh, still to, there's still industries that where they have uh, a, a middle person that can still be removed. That's And, and the blockchain sort of is hopefully going to be the technology that can do that. And on the government side of things, it could even lead to different forms of uh, political units, not the nation state necessarily. I mean, even the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, you know, wars have stopped being fought along nation state lines. They're being fought along different lines in terms of, you know, ways of viewing the world groups that view the world differently and not necessarily different nation states. So, you know, wars are, have, have already long been not happening along nation state lines. So maybe we will organize ourselves differently, again, not along nation state lines, um, hmm. potentially. Potentially. It's also just an interesting reflection on society that, that all these industries have been disrupted by the digital era, but uh, the last two would be economics and governance and mm. does that you know does that say that that's the most important thing to us or are we the most uncertain about it in the sense that you know we're not going to we're, we're clinging to our older ways i guess and we're not letting it change could also be they they you know they complex systems yeah um, incredibly complex systems um, systems that have formed over hundreds if not thousands of years and um for better or for worse, at least in the West, um, you know, the liberal democratic deliberative democracy type systems have actually been incredibly successful. You know, they've actually led us to this world that we're in today of all this fantastic technology. And, you know, um, as I mentioned before, it's unfortunate that our, our dear colleague and friend Jimmy has been in hospital after a bad car accident for a while and, and hanging around in a hospital, you, re you, you really see the technology that's at play in, in little and big ways from the surgeon that sort of patched him back together to the technology of um, sort of a, you know, a high tech air mattress that pumps in air in different ways that prevents bed sores, right? Mm. And you just, you just see the impact of technology everywhere in the medical system. And this world's, you know, the spirit of technology is to make uh, a better world, uh, a world where we um, have more quality of life, more peace of mind. I mean, that's a whole nother philosophical debate. But, um, you know, the liberal democratic system has 
you know, given us actually a lot. Women generally don't die in childbirth anymore. We generally don't die from colds and flu. It's, um, there, there's a lot that we've achieved through this liberal democratic framework. But I'm not an expert in this. I'm not a political economist. And this is, <laughs> I'm just a, I'm just a lay person. So maybe we should uh, get, um, you know, someone um, on the podcast sometime to talk a little bit about political systems and technology. Yeah, definitely. And the idea um, piggybacking off the hospital thing is, um, which I think you also discussed with Melanie, is technology as an enabler. Um, and she had a really good example of how the blockchain in the, I guess, more in economics and banking can actually free millions of people from poverty just by opening up, I guess, banking opportunities to people who don't have them currently. Yeah, yeah, no, fascinating. I've actually, Kate, funnily enough, I've literally just received an email from Coinbase, which is one of the, um, you know, online trading platforms and digital wallets, Bitcoin ones. And I'll just read parts of it. We wanted to give our customers an update on the recent Bitcoin hard fork. You can read more about what a digital currency fork is here. Forks enable innovation and improvements to digital currency, and we believe that we will see an increasing number of forks in the future. We expect this to be a vibrant and innovative community. When a digital currency forks, it creates a new digital asset. Adding new digital assets to Coinbase must be approached with caution. Not every asset is immediately safe to be added to Coinbase from a technical stability, security, and compliance point of view. Anyway, it's interesting. So uh, if if you're interested in that, have a look at um, the, the, the hard fork on the Bitcoin and how it's essentially created a, a new cryptocurrency. Um, what I really want to, and I'm, I keep on saying this, what I would really love is a city or a country, preferably ours, to take the lead and create their own cryptocurrency, even as an experiment with its own features and characteristics for our own benefits. I think it's. I think once the first country does it, like, and it's where I, I believe Estonia and Dubai are, are looking at it. I think it it may inspire the others um, to do it. But it's going to be very interesting when the first ones come out. Definitely, definitely, and I I actually can't wait to see um, the use cases in separate industries, especially self driving cars and just any any sort of smart technology that she referenced is um, quite fascinating. That's episode 101. I hope you enjoyed it. I love talking with smart people and uh, we're going to keep this podcast coming for you. We've got a couple of interesting guests lined up. If you want to be a guest on the show, you can email us at podcast.itsamonkey.com. Also, we haven't had one for a few um, episodes, but if you're a new startup or an existing startup, a small business, and we're happy to give you um, free promotion. So all you have to do is send a, a 30 second audio file. Tell us a little bit about your business and it won't cost you anything. It's our way of giving back and um, you'll get the link on our show notes as well. So you literally just have to send us an audio and it also exposes our users to interesting new companies. So it's a win, 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 as they say. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We'll catch you next week. And um, yeah, I uh, hope you're well wherever you are in the world. Thank you. See you.